It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. What you're about to listen to is part one of the second installment of the Book of Thunder Basketball. I'm joined by John Hamm, and we go over the entire golden era of Thunder Basketball. It was one hour and 18 minutes. We'll cut this into two parts. Part one is what you're about to hear. Part two will come out next Friday, so be sure to return for part two. In this episode, we got into the Warriors series, Patrick Beverly, the best Thunder team of all time, the James Harden trade, and was this the best era of the NBA? Enjoy part one. Let's get it going on the Locked On Thunder podcast. I'm your host, Rylan Styles. You can follow me on Twitter at Rylan underscore Styles. And this is the Book of Thunder Basketball. Talking to some of the greatest minds who have covered the Thunder in each era, today we discuss the golden era of Thunder Basketball with John Hamm of of 107.7, the franchise, talking everything from the James Harden trade up until that July 4th day when Kevin Durant left to join the Warriors. How are you doing today, John? Oh my gosh, there's going to be so much stuff to talk about. Holy cow, this is a very eventful stretch in Thunder history. You've got a huge window here to cover. Are you up for the task? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> so, and, and uh, you know, what's, what's kind of, you know, obviously I've followed the team, uh, you know, throughout the years, but I started really getting into Thunder coverage uh, during that 14-15 season, which we'll get into, and, uh, you know, really into the following season as well. So um, it's, it's going to be very interesting to go back and relive some of this. So that was actually the, the leading question I had for you, just to tell everyone – when you first started covering the team, where it was, and how your coverage of this team has evolved throughout the years? Yeah, um, you know, honestly, it's kind of weird. I, at first, I thought that I was going to be doing, uh, like, freelance writing was going to kind of be my thing. Uh, That's kind of where I got started off, um, just doing some writing here and there, and I would write for Daily Thunder. Um, I was a a contributor to News OK, um, you know, and, and had stuff there. Uh, but radio is where it turned out to be. So, uh, yeah, around 2014, I believe that was the summer of the great Pal Gasol chase. And, um, you know, that summer is when I started getting some radio opportunities and it just evolved into, you know, a, a thing. So from that point, you know, I did, uh, did call-in segments. I started doing uh, post-game shows, doing pre-game shows. Um, my, my current radio partner, Jerry Ramsey, and I fired up a uh, – Saturday morning show, which is on hiatus right now, but otherwise we'd be doing it. So um, really it kind of dates back to that. Uh, 2014 is, is when I really kind of like realized, Hey, I I think I'm going to be doing like spoken stuff rather than written stuff. Um, And I did some other writing stuff as well along the way, you know, Bleacher Report. I did that. Um, I I had a brief stint with Welcome to Loud City, which, you know, I just, I, I had to step away from, but um you know, I've, I've been out there quite a bit. So, sadly, we have to dive into this first topic to, to kick things off. I wish you could <laughs> kick things off on a better note, uh, but what yeah. was your mood whenever the James Harden trade went down? You know, it's, uh, 
I, I mentioned, you know, like how I transitioned from written to, to audio. My first podcast uh, was Thunder Buddies with Darnell Mayberry and Anthony Slater. And uh, it's, it's terrible. If you can go back and fight it, I'm sure I'm, I'm, I'm awful. But I was asked about that. And my response at the time was, well, they got a pretty good deal for their third best player. Now, I'm going to soften that stance <laughs> over time. Um, but, you know, at, at the time, I sort of understood, you know, where the NBA was headed in terms of they wanted talent spread throughout the league. They didn't want it to accumulate. There was a big backlash when uh, the three major free agents of 2010 all teamed up on the same team. Um, Oklahoma City sort of got hit uh, with a side blow there. And, um, you know, at the time, I felt like, okay, you know, I, I understand getting a, getting a stopgap veteran, uh, getting a lottery pick, uh, getting what looked like a potentially, you know, fairly high pick from Toronto potentially a you know yeah some one that could fall you know four five six somewhere along in there um and then a couple other assets um so that was my thought at the time and look I mean let's let's be completely honest even after that trade they had their best regular season uh of this stretch here that we're going to be talking about so it's interesting you say that I I agree with you that we kind of we kind of do this revisionist history of yeah you know the trade didn't pan out for what Harden became but at the time Mm -hmm. They kind of had to do the trade. And then at the time for what they got, it looked like they, they – no one was doing what we did with Paul George, where in the moment you knew the Clippers gave up way too much just for Paul right. George, and then they got Kawhi Leonard on the back end of that. Uh, but in the moment, or even whenever the Thunder traded for Paul George, whenever they're saying you only give up a little deep on Sabonis, that's all. Uh, in the yeah. moment, this was still a, a pretty good trade on the surface. Yeah, and uh, and Royce Young likes to talk about this sometimes. I, the article is gone now, but when Zach Lowe was with SI, um, at the time when there was trade rumors, you know, like Zach Lowe had written an article and in talking about possible trades and the theoretical trades were far less in return than what Oklahoma City got. Um, I think the other potential option, you know, obviously people you know, focus on what about Bradley Beal or Clay Thompson you know, Phoenix had a had a first round pick from Minnesota headed their way that was potentially valuable. Um, and so some of the some of the talked about trades at the time um, were far below what they actually got. Now, my criticism uh, has has not been so much about the trade itself. You know, yes, James Harden is a far superior player to what they got, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not denying that at all. Um, but I think it's something they could have worked around. Unfortunately, what they got in return. All they have to show is Steven Adams at this point. You know, they didn't, they didn't package the other picks to move up and get another player. That Toronto pick wound up falling to 12. And even though they got Steven Adams with that pick, you know, could they have done more with it if it was a higher pick? You know, and maybe came out of that draft with Victor Oladipo. Like, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings and, and, and all sorts of weird things happen. So, you know, that's been my take is that where the NBA was treading and with James Harden just not able to, there, there's just no way that he could have achieved the you know, fame and fortune, you know, by rule and just by resources in Oklahoma City. Um, you know, it, they, they could have gotten by. They just had a lot of bad luck go their way. So back then when the trade was made, did, did you foresee James Harden going on to be a star player, an MVP player that could really carry a franchise? No, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, I would imagine uh, the good old truth serum, if we could inject that in Daryl Moy, I, I don't know that he saw it either. Now, I, I think I think Maury and the Rockets 
thought James was going to be exceptional, you know, an all-star level player. And I'm, I'm sure probably OKC figured that as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's far exceeded expectations, just like Russell Westbrook did. Um, so, you know, it's, that's a credit to James Harden. Um, and the fact that he went to a team where he was given the basketball and, you know, go do whatever you want. And he capitalized on that. And, uh, you know, again, that would have been, it just, I just have difficulty seeing that meshing for a long period of time in OKC. Could they have held on for another year and then made that decision? Sure. Uh, but I think one way or another, at some point, Harden was going to be traded. They got at the time what looked like a pretty attractive offer that, you know, over time, you know, it, it is what it is. And real quick on, on James Harden before you keep ripping the hearts out of fans out there. Uh, <laughs> you know, whenever you look at this, and, and I've heard that before, you know, what if, what if the Thunder held on one more year and then you saw the potential that, that, that Harden would turn into, you saw more of what he could do. I would just say, wouldn't they get about the same return? Maybe even less because don't you lose leverage in that case because he's not under contract for as long as he would be whenever you trade him at the time you did? Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about. So the leverage at the time, and, you know, some people, I, I've seen hyper-focus on the report that, you know, Sam Presti gave James Harden 24 hours. You know, here's my final offer, and if you don't take it, we're going to trade you. Well, they had been negotiating for months before then. Um, that wasn't just a snap decision. That was the culmination because Houston needed to get him in, get all the physicals passed, so they could sign him to a five-year extension. Um, OKC, the most they could have offered by rule was a four-year uh, a four-year deal. Um, you know, yes, they they wanted James to take a discount, just as you know Russell Westbrook had taken, just as Nick Collison had taken, just as Serge Ibaka very likely took. You know, that was sort of the pattern. Heck, even people aren't going to like this. Even Kendrick Perkins took a little bit less than he was expected to get on the open market. So that was sort of the trend. Um, you know, and James felt like his sacrifice was coming off the bench. That's one angle that I've heard. Uh, is, and I think James has even said that as much. So, um, you know, so that was the leverage. The leverage was Houston gets to sign him to a five-year deal if they consummate the deal at that time. Uh, if that doesn't happen, if OKC caves in, gives him a four-year max offer, and then goes to trade him, I don't know. I mean, he's still a guy with mul multiple years left on his contract. It's probably pretty valuable, but I don't know. I don't know if that same type of leverage situation would have presented itself. Maybe it's a wash either way. So let's transition into a little bit of a, a happier note here. Uh, <laughs> and I'm just going to set the baseline here for this whole era. What would you consider the single best team in Thunder history the single best team doesn't have to be the best record but just the best team the best basketball team you saw play in Oklahoma City yeah I mean look I mean that 2013 that 2012-2013 team it, it flew under the radar nationally a little bit um, at one point I, I, I want to say it was Tom Haverstrow maybe at ESPN at the time could have been Kevin Pelton but pointed out like their margin of victory is really really predictive of a great team here you know they were winning games with a with a margin of victory of plus nine um you know Kevin Durant was he was sensational that season Russ was as well um you know and uh of course we're going to get to the part where it all came apart um you know that team wasn't particularly it, it wasn't like nine or ten guys deep necessarily um but the way they played by the numbers that season you know that looks like the best team and also the most guys I think were really locked in and engaged uh, because that 2016 team that we'll also get to talk about 
was really good there at the end. But, I mean, they really paced themselves in the regular season. And, um, you know, it just – it felt like that that 2012 team coming off of the NBA Finals really was in a groove. And, you know, unfortunately, we, we never really saw the, the full potential of that squad. So I would agree with everything you just said. I think that the 2012 team would be considered the best team. Um, but the 2016 team, as we're going to talk about, I think that their peak was, was pretty much the highest level of basketball that we've seen in Oklahoma City, the peak of, of what 2016 mm-hmm. turned out to be. Yeah, I mean, that, that's probably fair. That's probably fair. And, and like I say, that season, because I, I, you know, I was doing a lot of post-game shows, I was doing a lot of coverage. And, like, I remember that season, like, uh, they lost to Minnesota at home, which is rarely a good thing, and especially not at that period of time. Like, it was a Ricky Rubio three at the buzzer. And it was just like, I'm putting this team on probation. Good Lord. You know, they should not be losing games like this, right? And that was sort of the – almost sort of sleepwalking through the season that, yeah, whenever – when finally things started clicking for that team, I agree, it probably had a higher ceiling. It just felt like that 2012-13 team – was just more determined start to finish. So again, just to set the, the baseline for the era, if you had to pick just one postseason series of this era to be your absolute favorite, what would it be for the Thunder? It, it would be one of those Memphis um, playoffs. And I, I'm trying to remember, I should know this off the top of my head, uh, maybe it was in was it 2014 where they had like the three straight games with overtimes and one of them went to triple overtime and – you know, you had like uh, Russell Westbrook at the free throw line and, and Kevin Durant can't, you know, is, is facing away from him. And that might have been the series against the Clippers. Uh, now that I think about it. Um, but those Grizzlies playoff uh, squads were, that was just always a battle. Just always a big battle. Uh, always respected the heck out of the Memphis Grizzlies and Marcus All and Zach Randolph. And Tony Allen was constantly in Kevin Durant's jersey. And, um, you know, it was... that was just it was just great it was just great it was always super competitive and you know that's uh those those grizzlies were were formidable and and okc i I think maybe they they sort of helped okc toughen up uh for later series down the road yeah those memphis series were awesome one other one i had was the the maverick series because it felt like even if it wasn't in the playoffs just any time that the thunder and mavericks played it was just this intense knockout drag out fight for a lot of the case no reason because on paper the Thunder should have been much more talented uh, than Dirk and some veterans and and just hanging around with Dirk and the Mavs but every time they played it felt like it went down to the buzzer yeah and that uh, you know even in the 2016 playoffs that was the first round matchup and if you remember that's when Russ and campaign had their little dancing routine before the game and like Charlie Villanueva you know wanders into the middle of it a little you know shoving thing ensues um you had uh, you had Rick Carlisle, like, you know, uh, w- one of his media availabilities coming out and just blasting, like, here's all the calls that OKC is getting that we're not, and, you know, trying to play up that, that public angle because they knew they didn't have a whole lot to work with. And then they won that, I mean, disgusting game. It was like 86 to 84, I think, something like that on, on OKC's floor. Um, so, yeah, you know, th- those, uh, th- those series were always, you know, pr- pretty uh, – pretty stout as well and, and and like I say it's that 2016 one that kind of sticks out in my mind because of all of the extracurricular activity and then you had uh you know a couple times Mark Cuban calling out uh Russ and then Kevin Durant actually sticking up right yes no that's right the 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 he he an idiot yeah, yeah he's an right. idiot 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After he didn't, I think I think Cuban said like Russ isn't a superstar or something. Uh, yes. And Kevin Durant just went off on him, which Cuban Mark, just Mark Cuban's uh, not the best predictor of things. He should have amnestied Colby, and now Russ is not an All Star. He's not. Right. He doesn't have a big track record. No, look, look, Mark Cuban. I think when it came to the Thunder, was much more of a troll than anything else. I think he knew exactly how to how to needle the fan base and even needle the organization. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about that injury-riddled 14-15 season, but early in that one, Mark Cuban was saying, you know, I really think they need to tank. And I just remember Scott Brooks just, like, laughing off that comment, like when it was uh, you know, mentioned to him. And, uh, you know, I, I think it was just – I think it had a lot to do with that. And, you know, never forget when the Sonics applied to relocate to Oklahoma City, uh, there were two ownership groups that opposed it. One was the Portland Trailblazers, uh, and that was because of Paul Allen's connections to the Seattle area. The other was Mark Cuban, I think, for territorial reasons. Yeah, and that's why I think that these games have had such huge impacts is because even myself, I was a huge Mavericks fan uh, living in Lawton before the, we got the Thunder. I mean, I was a huge Mavericks fan. I remember racing to, to the Ford Center to see the Hornets and the Mavericks play whenever Avery Johnson was on the sidelines, Jerry Stackhouses. <laughs> I mean, I remember those teams uh-huh. so well. And when, the, when we got the Thunder, I still follow the Mavericks, but the Thunder are the team now. I mean, that's in your state. You get more pride with the Thunder. And so Cuban, obviously, just never like that, that there's a lot of people like right. me. They just never, they just never went back to, to you know his team. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he he claimed uh, you know OKC as as part of his fan base, and and he knew what was going to happen. And look, I can't blame him. You know, even though he was uh, he was severely outnumbered in that vote, but I mean, that just sort of set the stage for you know again a lot of this other stuff that we were just talking about. So we mentioned positives and negatives throughout this whole conversation here, and I've had this theory that I want to know what you think of it is that the Thunder fan base is kind of in the worst position possible socially because they've all they've done here in Oklahoma City is win. I mean, even this year, mm. you're expecting after you lose Westbrook, after you lose George, uh, Paul George to, to fall off a little bit, maybe be a middling team. They've continued to win outside of the injury season and the first season ever. And the first season ever, by the way, had uh, Kevin Durant on it. So it was still fun to watch that losing <laughs> team. So it right. feels like socially you can't just say oh we've had all this heartbreak and all this misery and things like that because then you get organizations like the kings who have been nothing in my lifetime uh, and yeah. just get, get on you but they have seen a, a countless amount of heartbreaks and you're again in that no no win position because you haven't done enough winning so you still get made fun of your organization still gets made fun of you also haven't done enough losing to where anyone feels sorry for you yeah and you know that's the thing is when people jump up on the no rings narrative right you know, Sam Presti had these three MVPs and didn't win a title. You know, well, there's a lot of context you're conveniently leaving out there. I cannot, like, I have followed the NBA for a, for a very long time, okay? Like, uh, I, I really got into it in the 80s. Um, I've gone back and obviously studied a lot of the NBA prior to that. I, I have enveloped myself in it over the years. I cannot think of another franchise that had the level of setbacks that this team had over that period of time. It wasn't just like one injury. Like the Lakers got to the finals one year and and Byron Scott popped a hamstring before the finals, right? They wound up losing. But it's not like that lingered for the next, you know, two to three years, right? The the Thunder had just, it's unimaginable to to explain Westbrook being lost in, in that one playoff series. The next year, he has a couple of setbacks uh, Kevin Durant, that's his MVP season, but he's kind of gassed by the time the playoffs gets there. Um, you know, Serge Ibaka, there's the calf injury. 
I whether they would have beat San Antonio with him healthy, that's another discussion. Um, and then the Kevin Durant foot injuries and and what I like to call, I think Barry Trammell coined it the the plagues of Egypt season where everyone got hurt. I mean, it's just I cannot think of another franchise that has endured a stretch like that with injuries at that level. So kind of keeping in the same you know track here. What would you consider the biggest what if of this era of basketball? Is it the Patrick Beverly just blatantly attacking Russell Westbrook yeah. for no reason? Or is it something yeah. different than that? No, I mean, look, that's the one right there. Uh, because, I mean, OKC was just blitzing Houston. And, um, you know, that became a six game series after Russ went out. And obviously, then, you know, against the Memphis Grizzlies, um, you know, they, they had Tony Allen draped all over Kevin Durant, and, and he couldn't do it by himself back then. Um, so, you know, that's the thing. And, and that's what I mentioned is like that injury lingered. It's not just that it affected that season. Um, you know, then you know, like of all things, a loose stitch, a loose stitch. Who, who in the world has a loose stitch on a meniscus repair? One team. Yeah. <laughs> Oklahoma City has this one just unusual setback. Um, and, and that is something that obviously he, I think he rushed back from it because OKC got off to a rough start after two games the following year. Um, he had another setback midseason. Um, and then, you know, Kevin Durant, who knows, did, did all the wear and tear add to, you know, stress to his foot and contribute to that injury the following season? I go back to that Beverly injury, just that, that, that reckless play. And I, I've never – you know, some people have stronger opinions about Pat Bev than I do. I've just said it was it was just reckless what he did. And, and it's unfortunate that, you know, that uh, it turned out to be a, a torn meniscus was the result of that. So would you consider it just a, a reckless play where he didn't really understand what he was doing? Or would you say it was intently dirty? Yeah, I, I never I never really thought, like, I'm going to go at this guy's knees intentionally, right? Um, you know, look, again, being a basketball I don't want to say historian, but connoisseur over the years. Um, you know, I, I've seen I've seen a lot of intentional stuff. That just struck me as just an overeager. You know, remember Pat Bev was playing in Russia earlier that season. Um, you know, I, I think just playing way above his head, trying way too hard, and um, you know, just uh, it, if 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 it's if just something happens, just and, and he lands a centimeter one different direction, maybe it's maybe it doesn't happen, right? Maybe it's just this little brush thing. I honestly don't think he went at his knees again. I just think it's the sort of thing where Russ was calling a timeout. Um, you know, it's pretty standard across the NBA what happens, but Pat Bev being a rookie in the NBA at the time and maybe not appreciating or caring about a lot of that stuff, just thought, yeah, he might be trying to fake me out and just made a reckless play. This Lockdown Podcast is brought to you by Home Chef. Now that the novelty of the new year has dwindled down, how are your resolutions coming? One of mine was to order less, take out, cook more at home. But I'll be honest, I haven't been consistent. That is until I found Home Chef. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify the cooking experience and without robbing you of the joy of putting a dish together yourself. I'm Pescatarian, and they cater to a variety of dietary needs. I had this super refreshing ginger sesame salmon, a beautiful trout dish, and a super comforting shrimp and vegetable orzo dish, all of which took me less than 30 minutes to put together. For a limited time right now, Home Chef is offering all of our listeners 18 free meals, plus free shipping on your first box, and Free dessert for life at homechef.com slash locked on. That's homechef.com slash locked on for 18 free meals, 
and free dessert for life, homechef.com slash locked on must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. Yeah, I, I think that the the timeout aspect is what really gets people charged up about it being dirty. But you're right. That's that's great context to remind people that you know, Patrick Beverly was was once a highly regarded recruit, uh, goes to Arkansas, I believe, uh, and then just mm-hmm. has to go overseas and play. And then he finally gets his chance. I mean, what didn't he only play like a handful of regular season games even for Houston? He finally gets a chance in the yeah. postseason. Uh, and he's just pressing because this is his shot to make it. And, you know, for him, he did make it. And he ends up being one of the greatest defenders at the perimeter in the NBA. Uh, but he was just going all out, and it resulted in something terrible. I don't think it was in his heart to just go blatantly try to injure Russell Westbrook. Yeah, right. And and I would feel differently if, like, if there had been a pattern of that since then, you know, where, like, you know, again, like Draymond Green was, like, he was drop-kicking dudes, okay? Like, that eventually stopped happening. Um, you know, Pat Bev, there wasn't like this pattern afterwards, you know, where, oh, he's constantly going after guys' knees. You got to watch out for him. You know, or like Zaza Pachulia, whose foot always wound up under a shooter's ankles, right? Ask Kawhi Leonard. Um, so, yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's frustrating because, as we're talking about here, it, it, we didn't quite realize it at the time, but it had an enormous impact uh, on the Thunder during this stretch. And it's, it'll be interesting in a couple of years from now, and once we get further and further away from this era, and even we'll jump ahead a little bit to an era past this of, of the injuries in Oklahoma City. Because once you sit back and, and think about it as we're doing right now, you realize how almost every season in the golden era, probably the best era of basketball in Thunder history, have just been riddled with devastating injuries. And you jump ahead to, you know, even after Katie leaves, the seat, they were playing very well before Andre gets hurt and, and Paul George's shoulders yeah. falls off last year. So, I mean, that's two straight years, even in a new regime, that are just decimated by injuries. Yeah, and again, like some people always want to find someone to blame. Um, and I remember that 14-15 season. Gosh, I cannot remember the trainer's name now. Um, he's, he's uh, I think he moved on to Charlotte eventually. But, I mean, like people are wanting the head trainer to be fired. I'm like, it's not a training issue, right? It's, yeah. You know, these are – like Stephen Adams went up for a rebound and an elbow came on his hand, okay? So, you know, same thing with Russell Westbrook that season. They were all freak injuries, and that's – you know, um, teams, have, teams have those. It feels like OKC has had more significant ones, uh, maybe above the norm. Um, but, you know, I, again, like with the Golden State Warriors last year, you get enough of those that rack up at the wrong time that'll derail things as, as it happened to Golden State in the finals last year. So with another what if, you know, around this era, again, jumping back, you know, this is all going to kind of intertwine, but, you know, in that finals game, you know, against the Heat, in game two, was Katie fouled by LeBron at the yes. end of the game? Oh, yeah. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I felt that at the time. I, I, I felt it, you know, I, I've not wavered on that to this day. And, I mean, again, every time I, I looked at, it the, at, the, uh, at, at the sheet, Whenever, whenever they used to play basketball games, which was a few months ago, um, you know, you'd get to the arena, you'd sit down, you'd look at the lineups, you'd see the referees at the bottom. And if I saw Tony Brothers, I just went, oh, man, uh, him again, because he was the ref right there that just swallowed his whistle on that particular play. So do, if you had to predict at that point that they'd be up 2 nothing, I'm going to say that they'd be up 2 nothing if they call that foul. Do the Thunder have a championship? And then are they now forcing the Heat to go 0-2 in the finals because of J.J. Barea and the upstart Thunder? You know, it's my, my thoughts on that particular era, I always felt – because, you know, people – I think Andrew brought this up last week. People forget that San Antonio team that OKC beat to get to the finals was outstanding. 
Um, they had – I forgot – they had a tremendous win streak there towards the end of the season. Uh, OKC was underdogs against them going into that series. My thought process was San Antonio could have beat Miami in the finals that year. And, you know, again, Miami wins the following year. Um, I felt like that 2012-13 team could have beaten that Miami Heat team. I mean, there's – again, you think about the butterfly flapping its wings – there's certainly a possibility where Miami goes 0-4 with the, with the big three. But, you know, again, um, these, some things work out better for some teams than others as, uh, as time goes on. Yeah, and even big threes work out better than others because, I mean, they had LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, and they never felt unbeatable. It never felt like there was a growth right. around the NBA of just what it was for the Warriors. Just hand them the trophy. Once they got Kevin Durant, yep. just, just give them the trophy. Don't even, don't even watch these games anymore. And it helps that they got off to a rough start, and then LeBron had that Rome wasn't built in the day comment, and then they, they moved their way through yep. the postseason, and J.J. Barea shuts down LeBron. So that helps the narrative a ton. <laughs> if they would have just smoked the Mavs, then maybe we look at that you know version of the Heat differently. But it never felt to me as a fan, and again, I was a lot younger then, so I didn't really have the, the context of everything, but it never felt like, well, there's no point of even trying because everyone can be the same. Right. The could have, the Mavs did, the Thunder could have. I mean, you go down the list. Yeah, it, it was more balanced than it was when, when, I mean, let's face it, when Kevin Durant goes to a 73-win team, you know, um, that, that's when the Warriors just felt invincible. And, you know, I think we agree that, if Kevin Durant had not had a calf injury that turned into an Achilles tear and Clay Thompson does a tear in ACL, maybe the Warriors win that third one too. Um, that Miami Heat team, yeah, like at, in 2010 when that happened, when that came together, you know, obviously it caused a firestorm, like I mentioned earlier. And it felt at the time like, well, this team's going to win six or seven straight, like LeBron said. But it just, it, it was, the league was more balanced than that. And it was good that Indiana had a team that pushed them during that time. Obviously the Celtics were kind of at the tail end of their thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, and I think that helped. And quite frankly, you know, Chris Bosch gets injured in a playoff series. They have to go without him for a while. Um, they eventually realize, you know what, we don't need to start like Dexter Pittman and Eric Dampier just to have a big band. Let's, let's downsize a little bit. And, you know, it took, it took some injuries for them to figure that out. And, you know, not every team learns from that. And you know, I remember, I mean, there was a ton of hate for LeBron, a ton of hate for that team, obviously, yeah. especially me as, as someone who hated the Heat because of 06, you know, the finals in 06. <laughs> right. 97 times in one series. Uh, he's but, still there. Oh, yeah. he's, he's still shooting free throws to this day. Uh, <laughs> and it, was, it was odd to me back then because I was a little kid. I, why are they both called the American Airlines, one center and one's arena? Mm. I, I just couldn't understand it. But no mm. matter who's the center or the arena, Dwayne Wade was at the free throw line. So, I mean, that, yes. that's all I needed to know in that series. But you know, you hated LeBron for that decision, burning his jersey and whatnot. But again, it felt like back then the the attitude was, okay, let's just go beat them instead of, oh my gosh, Kevin Durant went to the Warriors. Why are we even having the NBA anymore? Right. Yep. I know. And and that's you know that that that's a great way to put it. Is uh, that those Heat teams were formidable, no doubt about it. But um, you know, and it helps that Dallas did beat them. Uh, you know, in, in that first time around and sort of took some shine off of uh, shine off of them. But, you know, teams like San Antonio that came back and eventually beat them that second time, came up with the style of basketball and probably, frankly, a, an air conditioning issue helped out with that, too. <laughs> but, uh, issue, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> a, a convenient <laughs> but, you know, flip of the switch really helps out. There. That's that's uh, that's the way it goes sometimes. Uh, but you've been saying, you know, you've been following the NBA for a long time. And I, I want to get your perspective on this. Cause again, I'm 22 years old. So anything that happened in my lifetime, I think it's the greatest thing of all time. 
uh, in my opinion, <laughs> this golden run of the Thunder, and it helps that the Thunder were good and also the Mavericks were good, so this really helps me a lot, but um, mm-hmm. it, it feels like this was the most fun and competitive era of basketball because you have a good on-the-court you know, play with the big three of the Heat, and then again, everyone trying to take them down instead of being scared of them, and then you, you were starting to get the social media aspect of things. You're starting to get more you know, fan interaction you know, from all around the world. It, it just really felt like this was one of the best eras of basketball. Uh, but wh- what do you think about this era and where would you kind of rank it, you know, big picture? Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, cause I mean, look, I, I enjoyed at the time, like I sure did enjoy basketball that ended with, you know, 68 to 67 final scores. And that was not that long ago. Um, but I wouldn't go back and watch them now. I just, I wouldn't go back and, and watch them at all. Um, yeah, obviously there was a stretch there in the eighties with the Showtime Lakers and, uh, you know, whenever they were matched up with the Celtics and even those, you know, look, the Lakers had the Houston Rockets, the, uh, the Celtics had the Bucks. Um, you know, they had teams that sort of pushed them in different directions, right? They, they just didn't roll everyone. Um, that, that stretch was pretty good. The nineties, um, as we saw from the documentary, the Bulls were, you know, the, the best part of the nineties, there was a lot of ugly basketball back then. And I watched a ton because I was a big Knicks fan. And that's when Pat Riley came in and uh, decided to, to take a, a page out of the bad boys playbook and ugly everything up. But yeah, the, the way the game has changed to, um, you know, then um, Shaq came in and was doing his thing. Okay. We're, we're going to allow zone defenses. It was always man to man defense. Okay. We've got to tweak the rules because Shaq has forced us to do this. <laughs> Um, you know, and then they disallowed hand checking and it really opened up the game. Some people might argue too much, but this is where you really started to see the fruits of it in there. So again, I'm, I'm pretty fond of, of some of the eighties basketball, but you know, some of the stuff we're seeing today is, uh, like you say, when you add in just all the voices from around the world and all the technology that's come to be, you know, that this is, there's a good reason why the NBA got a massive TV deal the last time around. And again, you followed sports for a long time. And, you know, was there any sport that, that back then that was like sports are now where it's just a 24-7 all year long process? I mean, we, we never go months without, you know, talking about the NBA, even during a global pandemic. And right. the, the next coming weeks here, we're going to start training camp in June, start games probably in July and early August. And then I fully believe that the NBA is committed to playing on, on Christmas Day. So you're going to have an offseason from September to October and November to squeeze in the draft, free agency, trades, uh, and, and it'll just be never off of our brains and off of social media and everything like that. Is that a new trend in sports recently as we get the technology to do that with Twitter and, and 24-7 TV and radio and call-in shows and uh, podcasts and blogs and things like that? Or was there a lot of this going on back then as well? No, not that I recall to this degree. Now, of course, you know, again, sort of back in my day, as you will, you know, when I was in high school in the 90s, I mean, Sports Center in the newspaper, that that was my sources of information, right? Um, You know, I I never will forget, like, coming home and turning on the 6 o'clock Sports Center to find out that Charles Barkley had been traded, right, to the Phoenix Suns. You know, it's something that today you would get a notification on your phone the instant that uh, someone got word of it. It had happened hours earlier that day, but no one, you know, I, I didn't know about it until I turned on SportsCenter. Um, you know, I remember like opening up the newspaper one morning and Michael Jordan scored 69 points, you know, in, in the in the game the night before. Just, you know, th- there was a there was a lag in the information there. So um, and, and that has invited a lot of little cottage industries, you know, um, 
yeah, again, like, again, I, I've got a lot of knowledge about the salary cap. I tend to angle my brain a little bit that way, but you've got people that are really into analytics. That's where they're, you know, they've got something, they've always got something they can find an angle on and write about. That just really wasn't, there weren't that many back then, right? And, and it's something that I, you know, largely thanks to the internet uh, and, and sort of allowing this sort of group thing to come together and people realize like, oh, well, yeah, I, I, I want to know about this thing in, in the middle of August when there's nothing going on in the NBA. You know, it's, uh, th- there's a demand for it. So even if it wasn't, you know, people like you and me just sitting in our homes right now and talking basketball and then, you know, p- people all, all over the world will hear this tomorrow. Uh, was there a lot of speculation back then and a lot of like, you know, I hate to keep referring to this as you're some ancient, ancient person here, but you know, back in the, back in the day, <laughs> right. in your day, did, did you guys do a ton of, oh, what if Kevin Durant leaves or what if Russell Westbrook gets traded yeah. or what if Paul George wants out of Indiana or was that not really a conversation? It was just whatever the sports center tells us is what's going to happen. Yeah, I, more of that. Um, you know, w- whenever there were like trade rumors, the, the guy that told you the trade rumors was Peter Vesey. And, and he was a columnist at the New York Post. Uh, and he had a prominent role on TNT at the time. And uh, it was always, you know, like we'd go to halftime and Peter Vesey would say, you know, the, the Houston Rockets are looking at trading Akeem Elijah one for Danny Manning. And, you know, occasionally you, you'd hear that stuff. Um, but not nearly to this degree. And, you know, some of this too, um, you know, like there's a, there's a better understanding at least that there is a salary cap system. Even if people don't know all the intricate rules, like they tend to understand like, okay, there is a, there's a system that you have to check certain boxes to make a trade or sign a player. And I think that understanding over time, just the awareness, if nothing else, is sort of, encourage that and maybe people just didn't think of that stuff back then and I, I'm also too around that time I was a huge baseball fan uh, mm. I was probably a bigger baseball fan at the time than I was basketball and you know for me it was just always mind-blowing like oh my god Mark McGuire got you know five million dollars a year this is insanity you know and baseball trades were you know the the Yankees uh, traded three prospects for some other team's best player and you know but there wasn't a lot of like speculation leading up to that it just sort of happened and you were usually just sort of blown away when the deal happened because you know there was little to no talk about it in advance to sort of prepare you for it and you know you've been in the business with welcome to loud city and blues report i think that you know this generation has helped nowadays by we can find content anywhere i mean just go through whatever bradley bill's liking on instagram and you'll find something (laughs) to write about likes a jimmy butler instagram post he's going to go to miami right yeah, no, and, and that's, it's some of this stuff, like, I, I know, I know it's an angle for some people, but again, like, I, I don't, I don't care if someone likes something like, you know, what was it uh, a couple of summers ago where Stephen Adams accidentally liked something that was like negative Carmelo on Instagram, and it was an instant thing, and I'm like, come on, people, <laughs> let's, yeah. let, let's, let's not take this little moment and, and extrapolate that to something bigger than what it is. But no, that's everyone's got their little cottage industry out there to find something to write about. Especially whenever it's someone like Steven Adams. I mean, that's when I really don't pay attention to it because there's no way you can convince me that Steven Adams is playing games on social media. I mean, if it's Joel <laughs> Embiid, yeah. I hold a little bit more credit to it because he's been yes. known to do that. But Steven Adams, I mean, that's clearly a, an accidental. I really do believe that was accidental. I would really believe anything that he was hacked. It was an accident because I don't believe Stephen Adams is going on Twitter to make a statement. No, and and look, I mean, who amongst us hasn't, you know, in whatever app, you know, like there was a point like with Twitter.com 
where you know I would be scrolling through, and if I if I tapped on a certain place, I followed someone. Like I didn't mean to do that, you know. Just but the weird placement of things just allowed that to happen. The same thing with you know Instagram. Like sometimes you know they are deliberate, and I think sometimes uh, you know there's players that do it just to kind of see the reaction. But anyway, uh, yeah. Point being is that there's always there's so much stuff out there that uh, if, if people want to you know, sort of be the internet paparazzi. <laughs> they can go yeah. and find stuff and, and crank out content about it. I mean, that's like what Rob Perez and I, and I love my, I have his post notifications on that. That's what he's built a brand off of is just following oh, yeah. every single player in the NBA, making sure you know exactly what they're doing and then relaying that to us who are too lazy to do it ourselves. And then we'll right. just, we'll take it and aggregate it and, and ask what it means and things like that. Unless it's directed at somebody, I don't really give it a ton of credence because anything can happen. I mean, you yeah. can drop your phone while you're in bed and accidentally pick it up with the wrong way and you've liked something you shouldn't have liked. Right, exactly. And so, but you know, uh, for some people, they think that, that, that it's something drastic. I, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's content for them. You know, it's sort of like, um, you know, maybe there's a, there's a particular cuisine that I don't care for that people love. That's fine. That's fine. If you, if you're all about the Instagram likes, that's cool, but I'm just, I'm not going to use it as a significant indicator of anything. <laughs> So getting back on track here, we can, we can look at the bad and then the good. Let's do it that way. Uh, right okay. now, it, as we're recording this, the NBA is replaying that god-awful game, which I don't understand the big deal <laughs> around it. I really don't. I don't understand why it's such a significant event in NBA history. Uh, but where, where were you in game six whenever Clay Thompson just lit a fire uh, and absolutely devastated my entire hopes and dreams? I was at the arena and the, the sense around there, because again, we, we had media coming in from all over the place, right? Uh, because this was obviously the Western Conference Finals. It was a 73-win Golden State Warriors. They were down. They, at one point, they were down 3-1. They were down 3-2 coming into that game. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I was chatting with people like Matt Moore, who's now with the Action Network. And, you know, sort of like, yeah, I, I kind of feel like this. I, I think the Thunder are going to seal it tonight, right? Um, you know, I was talking with people about, okay, oh yeah, well, uh, if, if they get to the finals, here's how they change up the seating and, you know, just, just sort of prepare yourself. You may not get a credential for it. Like that was the sort of conversation. Like we sort of felt like that was going to be like, they were going to do it. They were going to take care of it then. And, um, you know, obviously if you're, if you're watching the game right now, you know, that didn't happen. Uh, Clay Thompson, you know, just, just went nuclear, um, Kevin Durant had a, had an awful game. Russell Westbrook had bad turnovers down the stretch. Like it was a culmination of things, um, that, that went against OKC there at the end. But I, I'm telling you the, uh, the general feeling again amongst m many of the media people there pregame was like, yeah, this, this should be OKC's game to win. So in my opinion, game six is really what you would point to and say that was Thunder basketball back then, because Honestly, if you rewatch the game, which I know it's hard, but I actually did rewatch the game earlier uh, in quarantine, uh, like right whenever it first started, I was watching it. Uh -huh. But they played good enough to win up until Clay Thompson went nuclear. And then you did have the Russ Westbrook turnover. You did have even a Kevin Durant turnover late in the game to where yeah. it, it really was the rise and fall of the Thunder. And that roller coaster was really just summarizing an entire era of Thunder basketball. The NBA playoffs are right around the corner, and Locked On NBA is here daily to keep you caught up with all the late season drama. Every Monday, Jackson Gatlin rounds up the three biggest stories around the league, 
helping to break down the NBA playoffs. Mark your calendars to listen to Locked On NBA every Monday to be up to date. Locked On NBA, available on YouTube and wherever you get podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Yeah, and uh, I mean, that series, you know, again, like Billy Donovan had to get a little creative. Um, you know, I, I, Roy Shung talked about some of the some of the adjustments he made to keep Ennis Cantor on the floor early in that series. Um, you know, Golden State adjusts to that. And then uh, Billy Donovan essentially flips offensively Serge Ibaka and Andre Robertson uh, makes, you know, Ibaka essentially the two guard on offense, Robertson the power forward, um, you know, and just, just that sort of chess match back and forth uh, between the two teams was fascinating. But when it came down to it, I mean, Clay Thompson's a, a flamethrower. He just absolutely yeah. is. And uh, um, so, you know, that's, that's the way it was in that particular game. Uh, now, there was one more after that. And, and I, there are some people that remind me, you know, I, I always bring up, like, Durant had a bad game five and a bad game six. Or like, But he showed up for game seven. And I'm like, but the odds of winning that game at that point like their moment was game six and it, it, it just felt like it's when, when the buzzer sounded, it just felt like, well, they're going to blow the lead because it just, it seemed unfathomable. They would go in game seven and Oracle after that. Listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.